Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, if anyone needs a Bible, I think there's uh, one or two on the back table there. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Today we're looking at part 2 on the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. If you did not hear part number 1, you can go to the Good News Baptist website and you can get... uh, Part number one on the Trinity. Well, let's remind ourselves, since we're talking about the Trinity, what is the Trinity? What is the Trinity? Well, if you see the first three letters in the word Trinity, that kind of gives it away. Tri means three. So that we have three persons in one God. Here's the way uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem put it in his wonderful systematic theology book, which I'm... uh, I must say I'm richly drawing upon today. It's a wonderful book. We praise God for for wonderful theologians that God has blessed the church with, and he's one of them. But here's, here's a good definition of the Trinity. If you ask, what is it? It is God eternally exists as three persons. Those three persons being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. That's a helpful definition. That's what we're talking about by Trinity. Now, it's crucial doctrine, a very important doctrine. We talked about that last week. I'm not going to rehearse all the the reasons why it's crucial and important. Uh, It does have great implications in our lives. There is some application. I'm going to give you some application uh, at the end of this message of how does the doctrine of of the Trinity apply to your life today in 2012. All right, we'll look at that at the end. Well, if we say that each member of the Trinity is fully God, and I am saying that, and that each person fully shares in all the attributes of God, and I am saying that, then we have to ask the question, is there any difference among the persons of the Trinity? Is there any difference? Is there any difference at all? And there is some differences, and we're going to look at some of those differences from Scripture, okay? Uh, Number one, we see that the persons of the Trinity have different functions. They have different roles to play. And we're going to first of all see the various functions or roles in relation to the world. As they relate to our world, they have different functions and roles. Uh, The obvious one, as we see in Genesis chapter 1 here, is we see these different functions in the work of creation. They have different functions in the work of creation. We see here in Genesis 1, God the Father spoke the creative words to bring our entire universe into being. And by the way, he did that in six days. Six literal 24-hour days. <laughs> okay, The universe did not evolve. There was, there was a big bang, but it was, it was a big bang coming out of God's mouth is what it was. Okay, not, not the big bang like the evolutionists like to talk about. But in Genesis 1.1 it says here, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we see God the Father, He's he's got these creative words bringing the universe into existence, but it was God the Son, Jesus Christ, God's Son, He's the one who's actually carrying out the creative decrees of God the Father. You say, how do we know this? Well, you can see this in several other passages of Scripture. For example, in John 1, verse 3, don't turn there, it says that all things were made through Him. 
That's Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. John 1 clearly says that Jesus is the one who made the universe. You say, okay, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Did did he have anything to do with creation? And the answer is, yes, he did. He was active, uh, just as the other two members of the Trinity were. For example, look at Genesis 1, verse 2. Genesis 1, verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So here we have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, same person here. He is moving over the waters of the earth. What does that mean? Well, apparently, He is the one who is sustaining. He's manifesting God's immediate presence throughout His creation. In this case, being the earth. He's sustaining and manifesting God's immediate presence. So that's, uh, in Genesis 1, that's a clear example of the different functions that the three persons of the Godhead are performing, if you will, within creation. And by the way, they, they, they're continuing to be involved in creation, okay? It wasn't just a one-time event a long time ago, but they continue that work. But we also see these different functions in the work of redemption. We see it in the work of redemption. For example... Now, this is crucial. You've got to understand this. Or There's a lot at stake here. There's great, grave danger involved if you do not understand the three persons involved in redemption. Redemption, by the way, is just when God buys us back from the slave market of sin. Think of it that way. This is crucial to understand the three persons at work here in our redemption. For example, we have God the Father. He's the one who planned redemption. And then God the Father sent His Son to this world. One of the obvious verses that many many of us have memorized is John 3.16, right? Just say it in your head with me, okay? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So we see God the Father sent His Son. He loved the world, so He sent His Son. So Even even there in John 3.16, you see two persons having different functions or roles. But we see there that God the Father is not the one who came and died on the cross for sin. He didn't do that. Jesus Christ is the one who came to the earth and died on the cross for sin. And by the way, the Holy Spirit didn't come and die on the cross for sin either. Instead, God the Son, you say, well, what did He do? Well, He obeyed the Father. He's the one who accomplished redemption for you. In John 6.38, Jesus said this, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Who's he obeying? Jesus Christ obeyed his Father. And then, after Jesus ascended back to heaven, you remember in Acts, the beginning of the book of Acts, you see Jesus ascending back to heaven. After he did that, the Bible says the Holy Spirit was sent by God the Father and the Son. And what is he doing? He's actually applying redemption to every believer. Various ministries he's involved in, which I won't get in 
to right now. That's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which you need to learn about. So it's essential here, or it is, it is especially, we can say, the role of the Holy Spirit, who is the one who is creating new spiritual life within people. If you have been born again, as Jesus said, it's the Holy Spirit who did that work in you. You didn't do it. God the Son didn't do it. God the Father didn't do it. It was the Holy Spirit who did that work in you. He's the one who converts and regenerates. You say, prove it. Well, here's what Jesus said in John chapter 3. He said, this is Jesus speaking, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, being born again there is in a spiritual sin. You're born physically once. God says in order to get to heaven, you've you got to be spiritually born Spiritually born. And it's the Spirit who is the one doing that work. So in general here, the work of the Holy Spirit seems to be to bring to completion the work that God the Father started and, and, and that the Son uh, did when He was here on earth. You say, what's the point? What is the point? While the persons of the Trinity are equal... They are equal in all of their attributes. The point is this. They actually differ in their relationships. They differ in their functions, in their roles. They are not the same. The Son and the Holy Spirit are equal in deity to the Father, but we see in Scripture that they are actually subordinate. Sub, under. Sub means under. They are putting themselves under God the Father in their function and role. But why do the persons of the Trinity take these different roles? Uh, You you say, well, was that just some accident that that happened? Or is there purpose in their different functions? And to to know the answer to this, we need to understand the next point, okay? So, So listen closely to the next point here. The persons of the Trinity existed eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? You need to understand that this has always been this way. That's, the, that's why we have the word eternally in there. Eternally. They've always been eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They didn't just become that way later on. They've always been that way. So before the Son ever came to this earth, and even before the world was created, you need to understand that for all of eternity, the Father has been the Father. And the Son has been the Son. And the Holy Spirit has always been the Holy Spirit. These relationships are eternal. And you say, how do we know this? Because none of us were there. No no person was there. No human being was there. So how do we know they've always been this way? We can actually conclude this from the fact The Bible says God is unchangeable. He is immutable. 
Right? Here's two verses to show this. Psalm 102 says, You are the same, and your years have no end. Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, or say, For I the Lord do not change. That means the way He is today is the way He was 100 billion years ago. Okay? And 1,000 trillion years ago, He was still that way. And 100 trillion years from now, He's still going to be this way. Does that make sense? He's always been this way. He will not change from that. Now, what does this mean for their roles then? What does it mean? They have roles. What does it mean? Well, the role of commanding, directing, and sending then is something that is actually appropriate to the position of the Father. And the role of obeying, going, and revealing God to us is something totally appropriate to God the Son. And these roles could not have been reversed. You cannot have God the Son doing the commanding and the directing. Otherwise, God the Father would cease to be God. Because God doesn't change. The Son could not have done that either. He could not have taken on the roles of the Father. Or He would also cease to be God. Let me summarize here for you, okay? Here's where we come from, all right? We see that God has always existed as three distinct persons. They're not the same. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These distinctions are essential to their very nature. Essential. You say, how are they not different then? If, if, if you say that uh, there's distinctions, you've got to say, well, how are they not different? Well, there's... There, there are some things that are the same. For example, there's no differences in deity. For example, God the Father is not more deity than God the Son. They're equal in their deity. Their attributes are equal. Jesus is just as eternal as God the Father. The Holy Spirit is just as eternal as God the Son. Does that make sense? They have the essential, the same essential nature. That is how they are the same. But each person is fully God and has all of the attributes of God. So the only differences between the members of the Trinity then are in the ways they relate to each other and then to their creation. That's the only differences. So we can see that the Trinity is equal in their being, but they're they're actually subordinate in their roles. Okay? Does that make sense? They're equal in their their nature, their essence, but they have different roles and functions that they perform. Well, that begs the question then, what is the relationship between the three persons and the being of God? What, what, what is this relationship? This is kind of confusing, isn't it? Uh, nobody on earth is this way. And, and frankly, all of the illustrations that I've heard trying to describe the Trinity end up down a path of heresy that usually ends up going down either modalism or tritheism. Modalism being different modes of God. No, that's wrong. Or, or tritheism. No, there's not three, three gods. There's only one God. So how can we say that God is one undivided being 
Yet in this one being, there's actually three persons. How can we say that? Well, to, to answer that, uh, I got some wonderful diagrams I got from uh, Wayne Grudem here that I've tried to do on the. We'll, we'll look at here in a moment on the screen. I hope these are helpful. Uh, please don't pick them apart because they're not perfect. Okay, but let's look at this question from the negative side. Okay, to really answer the question. I find it helpful to look at it from a negative point of view, and then we'll end by looking at a positive one, okay? All right, first of all, we see that God's being is not divided into three equal parts belonging to the three members of the Trinity. If, if you do that, then, then essentially you're, you're, you're down the path of tritheism, okay? God is not three equal parts like this diagram here shows. Okay. Hopefully I've got that divided in three equal parts. All right. Please no one go and measure it. I tried my best. All right. But the idea is there is some people think, okay, you got God as, as a big circle there, and then it's like cutting a pie into three parts, three equal parts, and you got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being those three parts, and the one pie being God. No, that's, that is an incorrect way of thinking of God. And it, again, it's very helpful to think of the Athanasius Creed. Athanasius, the, the Athanasius Creed affirmed this. I, I'm quoting from it on the screen here. We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. Okay, so don't, don't think of God as three pieces of pie. That's an incorrect way to think about it. It's important to affirm that each person is completely and fully God. Did you hear me? Completely and fully God. What, what I mean by that is that each person has the whole fullness of of God's being in Himself. All of God. The, for example, the Son, if you go back to that diagram there, uh, yeah, there you go. If you go back to this diagram here, it is incorrect to think of the Son as just part of God. Now, He's not just part of God. He is God. It's incorrect to think of the Holy Spirit as one-third of God. Now, the Holy Spirit's not one-third of God. He is God. And the same with all the other members of the Trinity. They are completely and fully God. Well, another incorrect way to think of the Trinity is this. The personal distinctions in the Trinity are not something added on to God's real being. Now, this, this diagram that I tried to do, uh, forgive me, it's the first time on PowerPoint where I've ever made diagrams. So, it's hard to see those little lines on the outside, but there's three, three arcs on the outside of the circle. And that's representing the three persons of God. And that's an incorrect way to think of God. God is not three parts added on to a whole God. Each person of the Trinity has all of the attributes of God, and no one person has any attributes that are not possessed by the others. They all possess the same attributes. They're equal in that way. 
Well, another incorrect way of, of thinking of the Trinity is this. The persons of the Trinity are not just three different ways of looking at one being of God. The persons are real. They are real. They're not just different ways of looking at one being of God. I've given you a, a PowerPoint here that hopefully will help you to understand this. We need to think of the Trinity in such a way that the reality of the three persons is maintained. All three of them are real. And the only way it seems possible to do this is to say that the distinction between the persons is not a difference in being, but a difference in relationships. Okay, The being is the same. Relationship is different. I hope that's clear. Now this is something that that you and I cannot fully grasp because it's totally far removed from our human experience. Every every different human being or person on planet Earth is a different being. Right? Every one of us in here is a different being. You are an individual. Okay? You're not joined in any way to another person. So so in our in our experience, this is this is difficult for us to comprehend. I mean, how, how can you put us all together and still have one? You, you can't, right? That's not possible. But with God, you can have multiple be or persons, but yet they're still one. That's hard to comprehend, but that's what the Bible says. So that's something that's far removed from our experience, which is one of the reasons why we have such a hard time with this truth. And so one of the beauties of this is you just need to come to it and you just need to marvel and say, wow, that's awesome. God's great. That's one of the ways that he is greater than us. All right, so those are negative ways. Let's look at the the right view, the correct view. The correct view is this. There are three distinct persons, and the being of each person is equal to the whole being of God. Now, I know that doesn't make sense. Uh, when, when you got three, it doesn't add up to one, right? But in this case, it does. Three adds up to one. What are the differences between Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, there's, first of all, I'll remind you, there's no difference in their attributes. Attributes are equal. They're the same. So the only difference between them is, is in the way they actually relate to each other and then to creation. Now the correct view, again, is, is hard to see. I tried to put some dotted lines. Boy, those are really hard to see. Uh, anyway, you see those dotted lines going in the middle of the circle there. You see, you see three parts there. Let me try to explain this to you. Because this is, uh, it's not, it's not a perfect diagram, okay? Please understand that, but, but it's helpful, alright? You see dotted lines going between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You got one circle, but dotted lines going between them. The dotted lines are showing distinction. They're not, they're not relating to each other. The same. Their functions and roles are different. However, in this case, I've tried to follow Dr. Grudem's model here. 
and make them dotted lines. And the reason they're dotted lines is is because they're, they shouldn't be divided. Okay, it's one God. It's not three gods. So it's dotted so that uh, uh, there, there's not that that division there. So the circles represented God's being, while the dotted lines represent a form of personal existence other than a difference in being. All right, I, I hope that's helpful. So that's supposed to show a, a difference in their roles and functions. But yet, there's, there's no clear, distinct line between them. Well, some people think, man, can, can you understand the doctrine of the Trinity? Is that, is that even possible? Can we understand the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, we need to be careful here, okay? We should be warned by the errors that we looked at last week that have been made in the past. Several errors that we looked at there. We need to be careful and learn from history, lest we're doomed to repeat it. They have, all those errors have come about through attempts to try to simplify the doctrine of the Trinity. They try to make it completely understandable by removing all of the mystery from it. That is extremely dangerous. There's meant to be mystery. This we can never do. However, it's not correct to say we can't understand the doctrine of the Trinity at all. That's not correct. We can understand some things. We can know some things. For example, here's one thing you should know by now, that God is three persons, and that each person is fully God, and that there is one God. You should know that. We can know these things because the Bible says it because the bible is truth we can believe it and know it's true but it some people say well that's a contradiction how can you believe a contradiction no it's not a contradiction i'll give you a contradiction okay listen closely here's a contradiction there's one god and there is not one god that's a contradiction to say there's one god and not one god that contradicts each other. They're opposites. But the Trinity is not a contradiction. You say, well, yeah, it's a mystery, yes. It's a paradox, yes. But it is not a contradiction. And we should believe it. Now, I want to end by looking at some application on this, okay? That's enough of uh, thinking about God being one in three persons and all three being fully and completely God. But what does that, you say, what does that mean for me here today? When I go to work tomorrow, when I go to work tomorrow, I want to know what the Trinity has to do with with my work. What does it have to do with my family? What what does it have to do with my life? Well, I'm here to tell you it has everything to do with all of those relationships I mentioned and more. Let me just share something I learned from my pastor several years ago. Here's what he said. He said, that theology drives philosophy, and philosophy drives methodology. Now, that's a mouthful. Let me repeat it for you, okay? Theology drives philosophy, and your philosophy should be driving your methodology. In other words, what you do. What you do should ultimately come from what you believe. 
So it's important to have the right theology. Theology being the truth of Scripture. Okay? So your view of the doctrine of the Trinity is, is going to have uh, everything to do with your relationships, all of your relationships. Okay? So that's why it's important for us to know theology. All right? I, w- I, see, I want you to see how this plays out. Because God in himself, this is, this is who God is, he's unity and diversity, right? He is both unity and diversity. It is not surprising, then, that unity and diversity are also reflected in the human relationships that God has established. Think about this. All right, we're going to think about some of these relationships that God has established. You can see it in all of the institutions, for example, that God has made. What's the first institution that God made? The family, right? God made a man and a woman, and he put them together. It was the first family, Adam and Eve. So you have unity and diversity in the first family God made, and all of our families should have unity and diversity as well. What other institutions did God make? God made government, right? In government, you have unity and diversity. You have, you have this aspect that you see within the Trinity where you have equal people. They're equal in their substance, their essence, their nature, but yet there's, there, there's, there's subordination going on. For example, the prime minister is equal to every one of you. The prime minister is equal to every single one of us. Everybody in New Zealand is equal. But God says, according to Romans 13, there should be subordination going on. We are to submit ourselves to the governing authorities, God says. Why do we do that? Well, it goes back to the doctrine of the Trinity. All right, so you have family, right? You have government. What what other institution did God make? God made the church. So within the church, we also see this as well, and and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But let's look at the... The first one I mentioned is that we see unity and diversity in marriage between husband and wife. We have unity and diversity in marriage between husband and wife. This should be obvious, but let me go over this. Okay, Sometimes the obvious things we miss. God is the one who created man, and when you read Genesis 1, it says that God created man in His image. He didn't create merely isolated individuals, but Scripture tells us that God made both male and female, right? God did not make Adam and Steve. God made Adam and Eve. He made male and female. That should be the norm. And so we have, within that, we have Adam and Eve coming together, every male and female coming together. We have a unity in marriage. Now, we don't see a triunity there, do we? Okay? Uh, hopefully there's not three parties involved in marriage. Uh, that's not the way God designed it. Okay, if there's a third person involved in your marriage, you got serious issues. We need to talk about them, all right? Uh, marriage is male and female and only those two together. That's not a triunity, but at least there's a unity amongst those two people. They're persons who remain distinct individuals, but also they become, as the Bible says, one in body, mind, and soul. Now, to see this, we can clearly see it in Ephesians chapter 5, which is on the screen here for you. 
Ephesians 5 verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. By the way, wives, why do you submit to your husband? Is it because he's better? No, he's not better. Just like Jesus submitting to God the Father. Is God the Father better than God the Son? No, they're equal. God says, wives, submit to your husbands as Christ did himself. It's just because it works better that way. They have different functions. Okay, Wives, you have a different function and role to play than the husband. God designed it that way. All right, let's move on. Anyway, husbands, here's what you're supposed to do. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, now this is a a quote from the book of Genesis. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see that quote from Genesis chapter 2. We have, we have two people. We have diversity, right? In two people, there's always diversity. But God says those two people, the husband and wife, come together and you have unity. Unity in mind, body, and soul. Well, where, where in the world does that come from? Well, it goes all the way back to who God is. God created us in His image. He Himself is unity in diversity. Well, in marriage, we also see a picture of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul said, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. God the Father and God the Son are equal. But who's the head? God the Father's the head over God the Son. Not because God the Father's any better, but it works better in function and role to work out that way. Therefore, it's the same in the family. It's the same in your marriage. For those of you who, Lord willing, one day will be married, all right? The men are to be the head. Wives are to submit to the head, the male. That's the way God designed it. So do you get what, what God's saying there in 1 Corinthians 11? Just as the father has authority over the son, the husband has authority over the wife. Not because he's better. I don't have authority over my wife because I'm better. In fact, in most ways, my wife's better than me. But that's just the way God did it. So the husband's role is here is parallel to God the Father. And the wife's role is parallel to God the Son. 
And if you, if you wonder why so many marriages have such a hard time, it's because they're not obeying God. <laughs> the wife's not submitting to the husband. The husband's not loving the wife as Christ loved the church. And you're gonna have, you're gonna have serious problems in a marriage if the obedience of scripture is not going on there. All right. Well, in the family, another way we can see this, in the family, we see a picture of the relationship between the father and the son. So just as the father and the son are equal, but they have different roles, guess what? Parents and children are the same. For example, my children are not any way lesser than me. In fact, they got my same genes, right? They're not lesser than me. We're equal. But we have different roles and functions that God has given to us. And that's pretty obvious. If you look at Ephesians 6, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I'm not better than my children. God commands my children to submit, to obey, and to honor their father and their mother because that's the way God designed it. He commands us to do so. Well, another issue we need to look at here is that in relationship between a boss and and an employee, if you're a boss, well, the Trinity has, has some some truth to lay on you. If you're an employee, the Trinity has some truth to lay on you. All right, And we can see in this a picture of the relationship between God the Father and the Son. So when you go to work tomorrow, those of you who are going to work tomorrow, you need to understand that uh, your boss is equal with you. Okay, If you're the boss, you're equal with your employees. You're all equal. In God's eyes, but you have a, if you're an employee, you have a subordinate role to play to the boss or the manager, supervisor, whatever you want to call them. All right? So the boss is equal to the employees, but God says he or she has a different role to perform. And again, we can see this in Ephesians chapter 6. Look at this. Slaves or employees, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters or boss, okay? Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Okay, do you see that? God says we're all equal. We just have different functions and roles to play. Four, in the relationship between elders and the congregation, we see a picture of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Okay, so anybody who's a church leader is on equal footing with everybody else in the congregation. For example, just because I'm a pastor doesn't make me any better than you. In many ways, you're actually better than I am. But So, so we're equal, okay? You understand that? But God just gives pastors like me different functions and roles to play. 
All right? And we can see that again in places like, for example, Hebrews 13 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Not because they're better. Doesn't say that, right? God just says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. God says you're to obey and submit to church leaders. And he even, give, he even says you have a self-serving motive in doing it. Besides obeying God being number one reason, there's a self-serving motive. God says there's an advantage for you in doing this. Again, it's not because I'm better than you. God says you're to submit and you're to obey. And so when you do that, to any church leader, you're obeying God. Number five, we see unity and diversity in the church between the one body that has many members. So the Bible says that in the church, we have many members, but one body. Sorry, one body. You, You can see the Trinity in that, can't you? For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. You see the Trinity picture of the trinity even within the church there's diversity within the unity so in that verse there paul is actually reflecting on the great diversity among the members of a human body obviously a body is not just an eyeball paul said body's not just a foot or an arm or leg right body has many parts right you got head arms legs torsos you know and, and so forth And that whole analogy is applying to the church. Church is like that. We have many different members within a a church, and, and those members have different gifts the Holy Spirit has given. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit's given you a spiritual gift for the edification of this body. And it's incumbent upon you to use it. Find out what it is if you don't know. If you need help, I'll help you. But you're to use it for the edification of this body. And so we depend on each other. We help each other. And and in the process of doing that, we are demonstrating God to the world around us. We're demonstrating diversity and unity. So when we see different people doing many different things in the life of a church, we ought to thank God that this allows us to glorify Him by reflecting something of His unity and diversity. So my friends, don't forget here, don't forget, this is important, that unity in diversity brings God glory. In fact, Jesus said, it's by our love for one another that you're going to show that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Number six, we see unity and diversity in the church between the bride and Christ. Ephesians 5, verse 31 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So those of you who are married, guess what? You are a visual illustration. You are a visual picture of Christ and his bride. I hope you take that seriously. Don't ruin the picture. Right? You are picturing Christ with his bride. Of course, the bride is the church. So each 
Christian is remaining a distinct person. There's diversity, but at the same time, there is unity. Number seven, and last, we see the entire universe will partake of this unity of purpose with every diverse part contributing to the worship of God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's how it's going to end, my friend. That's not happening yet, though, is it? But it will one day. One day, Philippians 2 will actually take place. Look what Philippians 2, verse 10 says. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In heaven, there is diversity. In heaven, there is individuals. But in heaven, there is complete unity. No one will ever have an argument. No one will ever say, yeah, but... Nobody in heaven will ever say, but but wait a minute. Those things will never take place in heaven. There will be complete unity. But you will maintain your individuality. I will be able to walk up to one of you in heaven and say, Hi, good to see you, and I can name your name. I will recognize you. You will recognize me. So what do we do when we see these things? What do we see in all of these activities? Well, we should see a wise God, number one. A wise God who is allowing both unity and diversity, both at the same time. We can see a weak reflection of the glory of God in His Trinitarian existence. Are we going to ever fully comprehend this? No, of course not. God's incomprehensible. That means you cannot fully understand Him. And so, even though we'll never fully comprehend the mystery of the Trinity, guess what? We can worship God nevertheless for who He is. You say, how can I do that? Well, we just did it today in our songs, for example. We can worship God, the Trinity, in our songs. We can worship Him in our words. We can worship the Trinity in our actions as they reflect something of His excellent character. That's His character. He has revealed Himself as one God in three persons. It is crucial. It is important. You must know this God, my friend. If you don't know this God, then you, you are knowing a false God. And idolatry is at stake. My friend, please know this God, the one God who has manifested Himself, revealed Himself in the three persons. May that cause us to love Him and worship Him.